Last week, we talked about Jerusalem. We talked about, we talked about the city of God, the city of light. We have talked about how much God loves cities because so many people live there, and God loves people. And we also talked about how in our beautiful city of Los Angeles, there are four million people. And in our beautiful county of Los Angeles, there are 10 million. We got to pray for them. And so many of them are God's people already. So many of them. What I'm about to say next, I got to preface by saying that no one loves LA like I do. I love Los Angeles so much that once I was attending a Giants and Dodgers game in the Giants stadium, in the Giants stadium in San Francisco, and as the Dodgers were losing, I was still cheering for them while sitting around Giants fans. <laughs> My grandfather, who had dragged me on the trip, said, Jillian, stop doing that. Someone's, someone's going to get upset. I love Los Angeles. I was born here. It's a great city. But I would be kidding myself, as someone who loves it so much, if I equated it for one second with Jerusalem at its best. Let's face it, it's not Jerusalem. That's okay. Los Angeles has its problems. Um, when I was a kid, one of my earliest news stories that I remember was the riots. We got problems as a city. We don't live in a perfect world, but you know what city also had problems? Jerusalem. I showed you this lovely little picture of a model of the temple in Jesus' time. There's a reason why I have to say all of that verbiage. That temple was destroyed and rebuilt in the time between the Old and New Testament. Destroyed. And here's why. Here's why. There is book after book of the Bible about this. You'll learn more about it in your adult Sabbath school quarterly next quarter. But in Jerusalem, they got a little too confident in being God's chosen city. They thought that because we have this temple here, it doesn't matter what we do. God's cool with it. Nothing bad will happen to us because we have the temple of the Lord. Well, if you think that cheap grace is a problem in the Christian community now, just listen to some of the things that they were using to they were using the presence of the temple to excuse back then. Straight up idolatry, putting idols in the most holy place of that temple. Um, there, were, there was injustice, there were crimes against the poor. There is passage after passage about all of the different ways that God was unhappy with the people of Jerusalem for ignoring and abusing the poor. And there was this total disregard for the Sabbath. Now, we, we openly acknowledge here that Los Angeles, while it has a strong Adventist presence, is not an Adventist city, um, 
Jerusalem is a Jewish city, so they should know better. They were trading. They were bringing business people in to do trading on the Sabbath. They were deliberately working on the Sabbath. Um, the whole point of the Sabbath, the whole point, and it's summarized in the commandment, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy, was to reaffirm God's love for all people, not just his chosen ones. In Exodus, he points back to, he points back to the creation week as the reason for this. In, in Deuteronomy, he points back to saving the people from Egypt as the reason for this. The whole point of the Sabbath was to remind all of us that God loves each and every one of us, whether we, whether we openly follow him or not, which is why the commandment isn't just you rest, let your neighbor rest also. Let the people who work for you rest also. Let your animals rest. Woof. Yeah. So... As these things stacked up, and some of it was so bad, I can't even talk about it in church because it would, it, it, the kids aren't ready to hear it yet. Um, God had to make a choice for their own good. He exiled them. <sighs> Get out your notes. We're going to talk about this exile. For those of you who are our younger congregation members here, the word exile may be unfamiliar to you. It's when you get kicked out of where you live and are told you can't come back. Doesn't sound like fun, right? So there was this idea that they were fine to do all of these terrible things because God would never let the temple get destroyed. But he did. And to them, it felt like the end of the world. There is this long passage in Jeremiah 4 that, I, that drove me nuts in seminary because I had to translate it. That's all about how the destruction of Jerusalem felt like the world was being unmade in reverse order from, from the creation. That's how it felt to them. That's how it felt to them. And so the question, of course, is why? What did we do? In our passage today, it talks about that. Tell this to the nations. Proclaim it to Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. There are the sins we commit because we don't know any better. And then there are the sins that we commit fully knowing better, just to thumb it in God's face. That was the class of sin that the people of Jerusalem had committed at that point. So here's the reality. We live in exile because we rebelled against God. We're, we're not in exile for no good reason. We rebelled against God. And I say we instead of they because this was not the first exile. 
this was. The Garden of Eden. You see, someone very smart once told me that history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And this is one of those rhyming ideas. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, as in they knew better, God had told them not to do it, don't do it, bad stuff will happen if you do it, don't do it because I love you, and they did it anyway. We keep on doing the same thing as human nature. We know better, but we do it. So God exiles us away from the beautiful, perfect world that he had planned for us. And we have lived outside the garden ever since. What the people of Jerusalem did not understand as they were being exiled was that even in Jerusalem, they were exiles from the garden that God had created for them. Ever since our first parents were cast out of the garden, we have been humanity in exile. And that brings up a good point. That story is in the very first book out of 66 books of the Bible. The people in Jerusalem who thought that the exile was the end of the world got to Babylon and had to be asking themselves a question, now what? The end of the world happened, now what? And Adam and Eve, as they stood outside the garden, Alongside their grief, alongside their pain, at some point, it had to clear up a bit and they had to ask themselves, the most important thing in the world has been taken from me. Now what? Exile is not the end of the world. Exile is not the end of the world. In its natural state, the human brain is very good at catastrophizing. I had to move away from this place I loved. It's the end of the world. That one almost makes sense. But what I love about reading British literature is that a lot of it centers around dinner parties gone wrong as the end of the world. You know, if there is something as major as World War I, you keep, a, you keep a stiff upper lip. But if your dinner party goes wrong, it's a disaster. That's the British for you. There is life after awful stuff. There is life after exile. The world does not just freeze and pause when something terrible happens. It keeps moving. It keeps moving. Now I'm going to get really... In our text it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those who I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens, and eat 
what they produce. I don't know if any of you have ever attempted those projects. Building a house. Those who I've talked to who have done it say that it's a very stressful thing that takes upwards of a year. Only once did I see a house go up in one week, and that's because it was a part of the Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and they had hundreds of people working on it. And there were problems, because when you build a house that fast, something's bound to go wrong. How many of you have tried gardening? I've tried gardening. I went through a phase of trying to grow lettuce. I was like, yeah, lettuce, there's something I use a lot. I should try growing it to save myself a little change. It took me weeks to grow one piddly little salad. <laughs> growing lettuce is not a high priority if you think the world is over. <laughs> I'm going to get a little personal with you here. This, is, this was taken last Saturday night as my dad, husband, and myself were celebrating our birthdays together. And I have a round number coming up in a couple of days. I'm going to be 30, guys. And um, <laughs> I'm not telling you that for, for applause or for you to wish me happy birthday, but because this birthday forced me to rethink my life. Really rethink my life. Because starting around high school, I thought I wouldn't make it to this birthday. Oh yeah, there's a couple of reasons for that. It was kind of a perfect storm of our delightful tradition of talking about the end of the world and the, the, the global culture's obsession with death. But there were some other things too. Um, when I was 14, I saw my brother die and he was just 17. I had a couple of rather serious death threats. There was one in college that got awfully close. With stuff like that, you don't expect to make it to 30. You don't. Your brain has this way of thinking there's a pattern here and eventually it'll get me. A lot of young people, a lot of young people fall into the trap of thinking that 30 is never gonna come. Sometimes, that looks like a reckless disregard for the future in the form of drinking, partying, whatever. Sometimes it comes in the form of not being responsible about one's finances. In my case, it just made me kind of unambitious, might be a good word. Yeah, unambitious, that's a very good word. Because when you think that you've only got a very small amount of time left, you don't invest in long-term projects. You don't. In the back of your head, you think, yeah, I gotta put aside at least what my employer matches for retirement, or it's a waste, but you don't dig in for the long haul. You don't. It's just not in your wiring. You think, I've got one life to live, it's not very long, I've got to pour everything into the next year. Everything. Whether it's good for my health or not, whether it's a wise long-term thing or not, 
What's good about looking at the world that way is that it focuses you. You don't waste your time on things you consider frivolous. But what's bad about it is that you end up ignoring the very real possibility that you could be looking at decades of life. I have a great-grandmother who a couple weeks ago turned 99 and isn't even using a walker. I have the genetic potential to live that long and I gotta start thinking that way. If we live from catastrophe to catastrophe, always talking about the end of the world being around the corner, which it very well may be, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot for the future. So what I get out of this text is we need to put down roots. We need to make long-term plans. There's this saying, this is not my home, I'm just passing through. It, you may just be passing through, but you're going to be there a while. Don't be afraid to make friends with your neighbors. Don't be afraid to plant a garden. Don't be afraid to start things that will take decades of your time because you may have it. You may actually have it. This is an olive tree, okay? If you plant an olive tree, you'll start getting olives in about five, five or six years. But if you're looking for a stable harvest that you can count on every year, that's going to take 65 to 80 years to happen. 65 to 80 years. If you've ever wondered why olives and olive oil can get so expensive, that's why. To grow them reliably takes time. When you plant an olive tree, unless you do it when you're five, you're not counting on seeing it in your generation. You're not counting on being able to reap the rewards of having done it in your own lifetime. You are planning ahead, not just for your future, but for the future of the generations that will come after you. And that's where I find what it says here very, very important. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. We're not talking about every couple needing to physically have a child. We're talking about making sure that there is a future for the beautiful gifts God has given to us. Increasing in number can include raising a child from scratch, but it can also include making sure that the beautiful things that God has given you don't stop with you that you pass it on to someone's child, that you pass it on to your neighbor, that you pass it on to the people in your life who would get a blessing from it. We don't know how much time we have. Short or long, we've got to think about the future. We've got to think about the next generation. We need to prepare the next generation
for God's goodness. In my parents' time, a lot of them grew up having nightmares about the end of the world. There's a right way and a wrong way to talk about the future. How awesome would it be if the next generation grew up having blissful dreams of seeing Jesus' face? If they had dreams of living in the new Jerusalem? If they had dreams of living in a world with no more suffering, no more crying, and no more pain? This is not an escapist fantasy. It informs how we live here and now. If we know we are headed for a better land, then maybe, just maybe, we can try to make our corner of our place in exile a little bit better. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this person, her name is Ellen White. And if you don't know that name, stick around a while and you'll hear it. And there's a reason for that. She was a truly remarkable person who was absolutely key to the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I could spend all day and then some talking about her, but I want to focus on something. In her lifetime, there was a shift in thought. When she was young, the man who loved her was afraid to marry her because he thought that marriage expressed a lack of faith in the fact that Jesus was coming soon. That's how, end of time, the very, very earliest thinkers of our Adventist church were. They were afraid to get married because that implied you would be around for a while and therefore you didn't really believe that Jesus was coming soon. They got married. He changed his tune in about a year saying, well, she needs a lawful protector on her travels. She lived to 87. 87. Long life is a blessing and a curse at the same time. It's a blessing because you get to see so many things that otherwise would remain unfinished chapters and loose ends. You get to see your children and your grandchildren, or at least the children and grandchildren of your friends, and you get to see how the world changes. But at the same time, imagine the deepest desire of your heart being to see Jesus and having to wait 87 years to see it. I think about that great-grandmother of mine a lot. Few people I know love Jesus like she does. And I, I can see that she feels blessed to have reached that advanced age in such good condition. But I can also tell that there is a sorrow there at having had to wait so long for the deepest desire of her heart to see Jesus. But what's interesting about what she did, what Ellen White did, is that she never gave up on the dream. She never gave up on the promise God gave of his soon coming. The last book she wrote, everything that follows after this is what's called a compilation, was Education. And the book Education is all about the future that she would not live to see. 
It's about setting up this beautiful little school system. Well, it's not so little anymore, it's global. It's about setting up schools where our children can get to know Jesus. It's about setting up schools where the promise of Jesus' soon coming would get passed on to the next generation. It's about looking out for the future even when we are gone. We don't know if Jesus will come in this lifetime or in 500 years. I hope it's not 500 years. But either way, we have a beautiful future to prepare for. We have, in the form of these children, the acorns that will one day become the solid oak trees of our churches. They are a precious gift. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Here's the beautiful thing about this. The prophet who wrote this down didn't live to see it fulfilled. But the younger generation read his words. And in Daniel 9, Daniel realizes that the 70 years have passed, and he prays for that prophecy to happen. And shortly thereafter, the decree is issued to go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. Jeremiah didn't get to live to see this promise fulfilled, but it happened. His words, which we still read today, lasted far beyond what he could see. Because he did not see the end of the world as his as his fellow people knew it to be, as the end of the world. He did not see exile as the end of the world. He kept on investing in the future. He kept fighting. He kept, he kept longing for Jesus. In conclusion, let's not doubt for one second that Jesus is going to come back and bring us home. He will. It's quite right that we sing about it from such songs as Lift Up the Trumpets and Loud Let It Ring, Jesus is Coming Again. Um, so many beautiful songs like that. Yes, we should do that. But meanwhile, meanwhile, let us not forget that we live in a place where we can be a blessing to others. Let's live well. 
Let's prepare for the future. Let's not throw up our hands and say the world is going to end anyway. Why should I care about it? God cares about this world right up until he has to come and bring us home. So we should too. I love this picture because it shows three very special points in Jesus' life. Four, actually. His death for us on the cross, his second coming, and our life together in the new Jerusalem, and him interested in us now. He is coming soon. We don't know how soon. But what we do know is that we live in a time and place where we can pass on his great love and invest for the future, whether that future is the new Jerusalem or the next generation that will carry the torch to the generation after it.